Welcome to episode 15 of the Travelling Wellness Show. On today's show, I'm in Margaret River and hanging out with the man that many label as the best athlete ever, Kelly Slater. If you're a girl, there's a very strong probability that you've had a crush on Kelly since the seventh grade, where his name was written on your pencil case and his baby face and crystal blue eyes hung proudly over your bed. If you're a guy with an interest in the ocean, there's a 100% chance that Kelly has inspired your journey with his futuristic style and flair for innovation both in and out of the water. If you're neither but simply a fan of sport, you'll be hard-pressed to name an athlete that even comes close. King Kelly is all that. Inspired by his craft, he has dominated the world stage in a sport where mastery is far and few between. But behind the enigma that is Kelly Slater lies a warm and sensitive soul who simply craves connection. Like us all, Kelly battles his own demons and seeks to make sense of it all in a world that he describes as too fast. In this podcast, I explore the man behind the brand and open up Kelly in ways that most of us have never heard before. His authentic transparency and willingness to share with us all is a gift that I never expected. And when the stop button was pushed, it didn't finish there. What I can say is that in the hours I spent with Kelly, he revealed a level of normalcy and genuine decency that I would only expect from a best friend. To you, Kelly, thank you. Today's show is proudly brought to you by PSC Cell Charge. Would you like to drastically boost your energy, improve your recovery, increase sleep quality, fight stress, and improve brain function? Organic Fulvic Mineral Supplement Cell Charge is used by thousands of professional athletes, top-performing business professionals, and everyday people all around the world, and is frequently referred to as their number one supplement. If you're interested in any of these benefits, I urge you to check out cellcharge.com.au. And yes, we ship worldwide. This episode is a lengthy one, guys, so get comfy, get hydrated, and please enjoy the show. You are listening to Caravan Conversations with Shannon Brenton. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Caravan Conversations is proudly produced by PSE Supplements and explores general health, nutrition and lifestyle with one of Australia's most experienced clinicians. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Travelling Wellness Show. I'm Shannon Brenton, your host and owner of PSC Supplements. Today we're streaming from the gorgeous seaside town of Margaret River in Australia's stunning southwest. And we're in Preverly Beach, which also happens to be the place of the annual event for the Margaret River Drug Aware Pro, where the world's best surfers come into town and contest their capabilities in the massive slabs of water that like to hit this uh, coast here from the Indian Ocean. Um, today's a lay day here in town and fortunately a lay day has, um, what would you say, allowed me this opportunity to sit down with today's guest. And today's guest, if you haven't heard of Kelly Slater, 
do me a big favour, push stop, go and punch yourself in the head five times or something. <laughs> yeah, you may have a bad case of amnesia and may have to do some recovery first. But for everyone else, uh, we're blessed to have the 11 times world champion here with us. Uh, Kelly Slater is the youngest and oldest person ever to win a world title and also has won world titles spanning now over three decades. Uh, this man has achieved more in his sport than most have ever achieved in theirs. And uh, the man that a lot of people, including myself, will call one of the best athletes of all time. So, welcome, Kelly, to the show. Thanks. That was great. I'll see you later. Thanks for being here. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, I, I know you must get that kind of intro regularly. Tell me it doesn't make your head spin still when you sit back and think, wow, what an accomplishment for a career. Um, yeah, it's. I, I probably go numb a little bit around it all. It's, uh, you know, it has, when you say three decades, been close to four, really. Yeah. Um, and in, still in here fact, at 45. In fact, by the time I'm done competing, I'll probably have competed in five decades. I actually, uh, well, let's see, maybe longer, because <laughs> I first started competing in uh, 79 or 80. So if we're going to include the 70s, you've got the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. This is now technically the fifth decade the fifth. of being wow. in competitions in um, spanning just over 30 years. I and, stand corrected. Yeah, so it's it's been a long time. Um and yeah, I mean, uh, it, there's been so many, uh, so many blessings come my way over those years. Uh, so many dots that I connected that made it all happen in a way that um, it is. It's for me, it's a little mind-boggling to look back at all the years and all the competitions and all the things. So many things went my way uh, over the years, but I, you know, I think there's a, a, a deeper thing to that in some fashion. But um, what's that deeper thing? Um, I know you're not a godly man, so I'm, I'm no, curious not, about I'm, what the deeper thing may I'm, be. I'm not a godly man, but there's a natural order of things, and there's an instinct that we all have, and a gut feeling, and you know, people talking about being in the flow or in the zone, all those yeah. kind of things, and and um, whatever you call it, it's uh, it's something that through sports and through a physical activity, I think you experience it more often than other ways. Yeah. Um, it's more easy to access in some way for yourself. But I think that I've just, um, you know, when my mind gets out of the way and I'm able to just trust my instinct and the knowledge I've uh, gained uh, from spending so much time doing the thing I do, from surfing and being in the water, studying the water, l learning about different waves and equipment and what, a, what, what ability I can bring forward on a wave, you know, when I just trust that and don't question it, then... Um, uh, you know, good things tend to happen, but you, you have to, you know, I find that you need to accompany that with, um, your feelings about people, your, your own emotions and thoughts about yourself, yeah. um, your bigger feelings of the world at large and the, the way the whole, uh, universe works, you know, mm. uh, that might sound a little corny to no, some people, not but, to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the everything works in unison, um, or falls apart. So yeah. you, you have to figure out the, the flow or the zone for competitors is figuring out that natural order in your sport and the, the way things work and, and being able to kind of um, tap into your own sort of matrix of, uh, you know, imagining the way it's going to work, foreseeing it ahead of time mm. so that things are almost like slow motion for you. you yeah. know? And that, that doesn't happen all the time. Those are special times. But when they do, you don't question it you just trust it and go with it and I, I feel like that's happened for me a lot throughout my career does that flow into other areas of your life as well or just through surfing <clears throat> um 
Only surfing the rest of the wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, uh, today's a lay day, right? And yeah, yeah. yeah we've had the well, hardest. We've I've, I've had a lay day for a week now. I'm, I lost <laughs> the last days ago, but I didn't want to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, no, I, I think that all areas of your life bring other areas up or down. Yeah. And uh, they all work together. There's not like I'm doing great here, so I don't have to worry about that. You know, anything that's that's pulling down is is pulling the whole thing down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, our mutual friend Trevor Hendy kind of talked to me a lot about that. You know, about imagine all things are kind of like connected to a sheet. It's it's kind of hanging in the air, and some are pulling down, and some are pulling up. You know, the ones pulling up got to pull harder than the ones pulling down. Absolutely. You know, they, and yep. and you got to figure out those ones that are pulling down and 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 uh, sort them out. You know, and mm-hmm. I think usually that um, you know the easiest road to that in a spiritual sense is just through uh, truth and honesty with people and yourself and um you know not not being too afraid to just confront uh the things that are tough for you yeah you've had things that are tough for you you've had things to confront along the way oh yeah yeah i mean i'm sure there's a lot of people who think um and i I mean i've had a lot of people express that to me you have the perfect life you know and i'm like you have no idea mm. the, the the things that I go through, the things I struggle with. People really have no clarity or uh, um, understanding of that. Um, Do you mind discussing some of them? Some oh, of the no. things you struggle with personally? No, I don't at all. Um, well, I probably do in some ways. But, um, <laughs> but you'll say them anyway. But, but as a whole, no. Uh, I mean, my, my struggles are um, on paper somewhat obvious. Uh, you know, I had a, I come from a broken home. My, my parents... I think we're unhappily married for the better part of 12 plus years, um, maybe 14, 15 years. And uh, I have an older brother and younger brother. Um, my, uh, you know, the way I see it, my mom kind of raised us by herself. Mm. Um, she, you know, even when my parents were together, I, it was really my mom doing most of the raising in in my eyes. Um, my dad was a good man; he was a he was a nice guy. Everyone loved him, but um, you know, he had he had personal struggles. He was an only child um, from a family. Uh, you know, his his parents split up when he was young. His mom was married seven times uh, wow. to a whole bunch of different men, and mm. um, you know, he didn't have any siblings to kind of. Uh, keep things stable and his father was an alcoholic my dad was an alcoholic um you know it's been alcohol prevalent in my family and um you know those and then you know all the things that accompany that the the, the, the dynamics of a family and the relationships that happen because of those things are really tricky yeah and um you know they're difficult and they're um there's no sort of easy fix for them but i think if you just take the right viewpoint about your life um maybe that you know these things were meant to happen and they they have to happen Mm. that you know then it's easier to kind of confront and look at the issues for yourself and um try to get through them so was surfing something that found you kelly um you know was it something that took you away from that pain at the time in your home well i didn't see it that way but uh, at least consciously i didn't i think that um but yeah, I look back now and I think absolutely an escape is what I'm talking about. Yeah, and I, I you know, I think I think um I, you know, I after years and years of sort of talking about this with myself and other people, I I think surfing is a drug, you know. Luckily it's a healthy one. 
and um, but I think sports are that for a lot of people. You you will find throughout sports around the world, you'll find a lot of drug addiction. You'll find a lot of uh, people searching for adrenaline and mm. that kind of stuff. You know, and surfing provides pretty much all the chemicals you need at some mm. point or another with the fear and the excitement and the fun and the travel and the, all the things that come with it. So in that sense, it is like a, a drug addiction. Yeah. Um, and, yep. But it's a good one. You know, it's a healthy one. It keeps you fit. Um, it gives you things to look forward to, you, goals, all this sort of thing. So I think, um, you know, where 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 addiction becomes bad is when it overshadows everything else in your life in a way that's that's harmful for other people and yourself. You know, of course. Yeah, yeah. So today being a lay day, um, I know you found yourself out on the golf course for <laughs> the second day in a row. Um, this morning, um, we were down at the cafe, and I heard a person come up to you and ask you how you liked the local golf course, to which mm. you were very nice about it and told them how, how great it was. And the man then asked how you played, and um, your answer to that was that you shot your irons terribly yesterday, mm. and uh, you still finished with a uh, five over. And mm. uh, for myself and every other novice um, golfer out there, Kelly, can I just say, fuck you. <laughs> If I'm shooting five hours, yeah. overs, mate, that's not a bad day on the irons. That, that's a good day. Yeah, I, I literally hit three greens yesterday and shot 77. Yeah, uh, yeah. I shot even today. And so, uh, I miss a lot of greens. But, I, um, you, know, you know, I've been playing golf a long time. And it's I've gotten to a point where it's not easy. But it's um, I'm able to self-correct and kind of teach myself. Um, I know, I understand a ball flight. And what went wrong or right when you hit the ball and, and, you know, your your club head and your swing path and all those sort of things uh, are, you know, the, the ball flight indicates all that kind of stuff. So um, I studied the game so much over the years. You know, it, I, there was a lot of time I was playing more golf than I was surfing wow. all throughout my career. Wow. Um, basically through the mid-90s especially. And... um uh, you know, I found through from surfing and golf and playing music, there weren't enough hours in the day, yep. really, to be honest. Yeah. So, I mean, because all of those can take up every day, all day, each each one of them by themselves. So, hundred percent. Well, the, uh, the best of them, the best of musicians, <clears throat> the best of golfers, they're obsessed by their craft most mm. of the time, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. You, you've obviously handled a way of trying to juggle three things at once. Yeah, somewhat. Um, and you know, they each add to and take away from the other things. So. But but it's it's definitely enough to fill a lifetime for me. Yeah, cool. Very very nice. Hey, um, getting onto food, Kelly. I know that you're a <laughs> um, an advocate for healthy living. Um, mm. It's something that wasn't always the case. I remember back in primary school, it was for me uh, when uh, Kelly Slater in Black and White came out, and I'm watching this young kid who had it all laid out in front of him, sitting down to his bowl of Cheerios. Mm. Um, this morning, you told me the Cheerios were actually the healthiest part of your diet. <laughs> yeah, they were. They the, were. Uh, the five tablespoons of sugar on top of the Cheerios was the topping. Oh, yeah. Heaped tablespoons. They weren't just like... Heaped tablespoons. They weren't like level tablespoons. That's <laughs> mental. Um, you know, I I, uh, I laugh about what I would do in high school because I, I, I had this program for myself where there was this talk show I really liked to watch before I went to sleep. And um, that would keep me up till about midnight. And then I would go to sleep after that and I could wake up and I had the timing so down that I knew I could wake up at say 7:43 and by you know I had to be in cl- I had to be in class 
between 8.10 and 8.15. By 8.15, I had to be in my seat. So Cheerios was a quick breakfast option. And uh, no, it was way worse than that because I would – a lot of days I would um, just fill the the blender up with uh, literally like ice cream, donuts, milk, um, chocolate, whatever crap, whatever just absolute shit food I could put in there that – I liked as a snack. Basically, I put a whole bunch of desserts into breakfast and I would blend it up and I'd eat it on the way to school. And about halfway through the first period in, in class, I'd be doubled over in pain with stomach pains and I just <laughs> couldn't understand. I mean, I don't know what was going on in my head to think you could put that much sugar and crap in your body and, and but function. I just but, you know, that's it. That, that makes me think straight away two things. I, that was just something I didn't learn in my family and it was definitely something I didn't learn in school because yeah. they don't teach you about actual health in school at all. Yep. At least not in America. So at which point did nutrition become vital for you? Was it something that, you know, um, you're doing well, um, people obviously take you underneath their wing and try to make you better, or was it something that you sort of just stumbled across, across yourself as a necessity as an athlete? Um, I think the real, I mean, I guess after I got out of high school, started, started traveling by myself, I started to kind of eat a bit better um, for the most part. But, uh, um, I used to, well, I was in a health food store actually one day and I was ordering a sandwich and, um, I was already starting to kind of eat healthy in my early twenties. And then I think I was about 23, 24 when this happened. I, I was at this health food store in California and I saw, I ordered food and I was just standing around looking at magazines and whatever. And there was an audio cassette for sale for $1 by a guy named Dr. Joel Wallach who did it. Uh, dead doctors don't dead lie. Dead doctors don't yeah. lie. Yeah. And it was all about dead doctors don't lie. And and for people who don't know dead doctors don't lie, this guy, Joel Wallach, studied, he had done 3,000 human autopsies, 17,000 animal autopsies. He had studied the oldest people in the world. He'd studied all types of disease and, uh, you know, degeneration, degenerative diseases. And, um, you know, in this, basically in this thing, he said, there's no such thing as dying of old age. You die of a depletion or degeneration of mm-hmm. something, a lack of something over a long period of time. And then that causes a disease. And, um, he basically was saying, you know, it's possible to put those things back in if you know what you're dealing with. And um, anyways, this $1 audio cassette played over and over and over in my car while I drive around California. And I was thinking, that's probably the best dollar I ever spent in my life. <laughs> and um, it really got me thinking, um, you know, you can heal things. And and having grown up in a family that, you know, we didn't have any obesity problems and stuff. But we, you know, there's some depression, some alcoholism and some, you know, certain things going on and not a real super healthy uh diet happening i i found interest uh firstly for myself but then also for my family and other people that you know i want to know this stuff yeah when i was 18 i was traveling with tom carroll in in australia i was actually in, in um newcastle at the time and i remember i had this dinner and i had um spaghetti with um meat like meat sauce yeah like a bolognese bolognese yeah and um and then the next day, I, I told Tom that I was feeling really uh, tired. I was like, I don't know why I'm so tired. And he goes, well, what would you have for dinner? And I told him, and he said, well, you had carbs and protein together. And I started going, well, what, yeah, what does that mean? What do you mean? He's like, like well, nutrient combining, yeah? Yeah. So he started talking about food combining. And um, he said, you know, sometimes if you eat proteins and, and, and carbohydrates together, your body didn't work efficiently. And I was like, how does he know this stuff? <laughs> and I was like, Tom was the first person that I actually knew that knew something about diet. Yeah. And, and um, it intrigued me, and I wanted to know that kind of stuff. So I 
I started studying and then I read um, a book called Fit for Life, which was all about food combining. And um, I actually applied that. I uh, In the late 90s, I became a fan of the Gracie family, um, Hicks and Gracie, and, and uh, eventually became good friends with Hickson and, um, and a few of the brothers and, and uh, nephews and stuff. But, uh, uh, you know, and, and, mo- and I would say probably a quarter of my surf friends are hugely influenced by the Gracies now because of jiu-jitsu anyways. Mm. But uh, they always followed, the, they called the Gracie diet, but it was just food combining. So when I read Hickson talking about food combining and and um, and started to look into it myself a bit more, I was really intrigued that, you know, the, the digestive system more easily breaks down proteins or carbs by themselves and not together. You can't yeah. figure out if they're an alkaline or an acid and how, they, how to break them down the stomach properly. And so I started to kind of experiment with those kind of diets. Um, I, in 98, I spent a better part of the year. I was traveling with Shane Dorian, and um, he just said, look, just tell me what to eat. I'll eat what you eat. And I said, all right, we're going to food combine. And so, we, you know, most of our meals were food combined for the year where you have just proteins or just uh, carbs at the meal. And I was sleeping like six hours a night, waking up with tons of energy. Um, Shane was like, you know, he's like, I've never been fat, but like I can tell I'm way skinnier. Like he was really um, – really worried about like having like just fat layer under his skin he wanted to be yeah. super ripped yeah. <laughs> and he's like man i'm getting he's like i'm just getting way more ripped like uh you know with, without having to eat the way i was eating yeah. it's like this works i can feel it and just yeah. for our listeners when you're talking about not combining proteins and carbs you're talking proteins and starches right starches, yeah. yeah so yeah, yeah. okay still fruits would generally be eaten on their own but fruits like on their own yeah. vegetables and uh and salad could be eaten with proteins yes any greens could pretty much be eaten with anything yeah cool yeah so you yep. can mix fruits and and uh any kind of uh, vegetables or meats or starches mm. any of those with with greens which are kind of their own classification you yep. know salad um and and obviously you understand you and all this stuff, so I'm not really telling you, but for people out there that don't know, so it, uh, and then you know if you really dive into it and you start getting into the fruits, you don't want to eat citrus fruits with subacid fruits, and you know yep. you don't want the overly sweet stuff with the citrus and that kind of thing. So um, you would even break the fruits down further. So and your fascination with food though goes far past just your role as an athlete, right? You're sort of looking mm. at food as the substance that will take you into your. 50s 60s 70s 80s etc absolutely i mean i want to i want to have longevity in life i don't want to be in some old folks home with somebody taking care of me wiping my butt <laughs> sorry <laughs> just i'd rather kill myself honestly <laughs> i i don't want to go out like that i don't want to be a burden to other people i want to be healthy and happy till the second i'm done breathing yeah yeah absolutely and um being and taking care of myself and you know i've always said i want to get barreled at back door when i'm 90 years old and i'm planning on doing it so i'd like to watch that yeah, <laughs> yeah nice but, um, you know, and beyond that, I, I, I want to share information with people. You know, I think that's mm. the most important thing you can really do for people is share information, plant seeds, get them thinking about something, maybe questioning something that they feel is right and maybe it's not right or something that's wrong and they, then you got an answer for it or somewhere to, to help lead them to talk to someone else that has the right answer. So, I, yeah. I mean, to me, life's much more fulfilling in that way than it is um, – I mean, look, I have a lot of accolades and that kind of thing, but it, it makes me a lot more happy to see somebody um, absolutely change their life and find some fascination with their health or, uh, you know, some some sort of uh, hope for the situation they're in with a 
with a health problem or something than it does to to go win a contest. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah puts I mean, things in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know, my dad dying of cancer was a a big turning point for me. Also, in two thousand two, he passed away, and it got me like infatuated with studying um, a, a how to uh, to to never have that happen, but also how to reverse that if it ever were to happen to myself or someone I knew and and um you know I've never gone out there and cured somebody but you know I I always uh offer up some alternative ways of looking at your diet and 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 uh what to do when you get sick cuz I went and spent a lot of time with a bunch of different doctors and healthcare practitioners when my father was ill and I just learned a lot you know I just turned into a fly on the wall and just wanted to read and learn and I'm getting the feeling that's yeah. the way your brain works. <laughs> yeah. yeah for <laughs> when sure. you start talking about golf trajectory and, and the like, it's like, hang on, I think this guy likes to research. Mm. I do. Impressive. I mean, it's, it's exciting. There's nothing more exciting than learning something new. My godson, um, he's 10 years old now. He just got into surfing. He was into skating for a long time. And uh, this last year and a half, he's really gotten into to surfing. But right before that, he was at a skate camp and this. Uh, Actually, I think he might have been home, not at skate camp. But anyways, he was skateboarding this one day, and this girl wanted to interview him for a radio show, and I listened to this thing. And she said, so, you know, what do you want to do? Like, um, you know, how how good do you want to be? Do you want to be professional or whatever? And he, he said uh, one of the most profound things I've ever heard, and it, it was, uh, he said, progression is better than winning. Wow, from a 10-year-old. Yeah, he was actually eight at the time. Wow. And he goes, he so he goes, I just progressing and learning new things is so much better than winning something. So I just want to get better. Mm. And I was like, well, how cool is that? You know, cause that, that you could hear the, the happiness and the, like the pure joy in his voice about like, okay, there's a new maneuver I'm trying to work on. And, mm. you know, I tried to, st- I st- stuck a new trick today or whatever. Is this where your uh, interest and fascination in jujitsu comes from? You know, of, of all the martial arts, it's the one that's the longest to master. It's the longest to get the black belt. Mm. You know, it's, it's obviously the sort of thing you go in one day and you get towed up by, mm. People smaller than you, bigger than you, better than <laughs> yeah. you, worse than you. It's, yeah. It changes day to day. So yeah. is is that something else that once again you've been able to apply your mind to and study the art of? Um, and not enough. I've heard that Aikido was the hardest to get a black belt in, but I'm not sure if that's true. Um, For the purpose the hardest, of this conversation, we'll say it's jiu-jitsu. We'll say it's jiu-jitsu. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard it's like a 20 years to really even get a grasp of what Aikido is. is what people really? Told me. Yeah, but wow. um, I've never trained any Aikido at all, but... Um, and I, you know, my, my jujitsu training is limited to be honest, it, it, but those limited jujitsu sessions are with like Hicks and Gracie and yeah. people um, you want to be like trained by Ricardo Rona and Mario Sperry yeah. and uh, Victor Belfort and, yep. you know, like the really like the Marcus Buschetta, the Mendez brothers. And, you know, these are guys I've been really fortunate enough to train with. And the reason why is because they love surfing and Perfect. Um, I've, met swap. Them, I've met them through surfing and, yep. uh, so, you know, they have a love of my sport. I have a love of their sport, and they've been more than grateful sharing that. And This know, is similar might, to Eddie Vedder as well, I'd imagine. I might pass a surfboard over here and there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course you do. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you met Eddie the same way, did you, from Pearl Jam? Um, I met Eddie, actually, I met Eddie at a, uh, well, you know, listen to the early Pearl Jam. Because um, he surfs, doesn't he? Yeah, well, if you listen to the early Pearl Jam records, Eddie talks a lot about the ocean, a lot about surfing in a in a sort of, got a song called the ocean yeah ocean um, yeah well, he's got a song called Off big 10. wave he's got a, he's got us he's got a song called tremor christ mm. which is a play on a surfer's name uh his name is trevor christ 
that oh, we really? grew up surfing with, and he was in the San Diego area. And, okay. And so Eddie was like kind of just the way he told me was he was kind of playing with his name, and he kind of wanted to subliminally put this surf message in there or something. But, you know, if you uh, listen to some of the old lyrics, um, you know, uh, I mean, there's some really powerful lyrics about the surfing. Like, Eddie, there's one song he sings. I'll ride the wave where it takes me. That's re- release. Yeah. It's yeah. A, Great um, song. And so before I ever met Eddie, I met Eddie in 97, I think it was. But prior to ever meeting him, I, I just felt this connection with him, you know, and uh, through that. But I'm sure millions and millions of people have. Mm. Um, but I was at this party in L.A. Uh, doing the Grammys, and I, I, I knew he was in this other room. So I walked over to go say hi to him and. We just kind of made met eyes, and he just said, "I've been watching you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching you." And this really like Eddie Vedder voice, <laughs> yeah. And it was cool. It was like uh, had this really cool. And we sat down for ten, five, ten minutes, and talked. And then over the years, we became friends. And and uh, you know, he goes, uh, he called me one time. He said, "Hey, uh, you know, I'm going to Florida. I'm going to go on a surf trip." You know, I want to do something. I want to go surf in Florida. Where should I go? And what should I do? And I go, well, not why? Florida. I, I go, why? <laughs> I go, why are you going? Why are you really going to Florida? Yeah. <laughs> he goes, yeah. Well, there might be a girl involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's always a girl involved. Yeah, and that's now his wife, Jill. Um, but uh, you know, it was kind of like I think he wanted to combine the two things. You know, yeah, absolutely. Not put any pressure on the on the going there and spending time together and he, I wasn't home he actually met up with my brother and a few friends and surfed in my hometown for a couple of days and he actually almost died um they went they decided to go night surfing during a hurricane swell oh, geez. and um they didn't know Eddie's level or whatever and f- for my brother and them it wasn't a big day but for Florida it was a pretty big day mm-hmm. and um Eddie drifted about a mile down the beach to the south and he thought he he didn't know where he came in so he started walking south when he came in and he ended up like <laughs> two miles <laughs> two miles three miles away yeah and um and then uh everyone was panicking going freaking killed eddie like he, he's gone you know and they're and they're trying not to freak his new girlfriend out yeah and um and then he eventually like an hour later or whatever it was got found the house because you know, it was like his first day ever at this house, so he didn't even know what it looked like it in the dark. <laughs> and, uh, um, so. Gee, I love to hear the vulnerability of people like Eddie Vedder. You know, it's amazing. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, but uh, funny in a good way because it, you know, everyone was safe. But uh, what's been the best thing about fame for you, Kelly? Obviously, you know, with fame comes <laughs> money and opportunity, and you know, you you're hanging out and surfing with with uh, Eddie, and you're playing, you know with your jiu-jitsu with the best and mm. obviously brings so much but what, what's what been the really for you the very best part the most fulfilling part of you know the success you've been able to achieve um you know in some way my life is uh, in a almost on a daily uh time frame like a, a childhood dream mm. uh, because i get to meet people like that you know um you know, I got a phone call from Jimmy Buffett a couple of days ago. And he really? says, hey, I'm going to Tavarua. Why don't you meet me in Fiji? Yeah. And he said, if, and then uh, he said, on Saturday, on, then we'll leave on Saturday. We'll fly to Norfolk Island for a day. And then we'll fly into the Gold Coast and I'll drop you off. Wow. He's got his own plane, you know. And, and uh, he, you know, he's, he's flown me around a couple of times. 
he flew me down to my brother's bachelor party in Key West yeah. from, from Central Florida one time. And uh, my girlfriend and I flew into New York one time, and he picked us up at JFK in his plane and flew us out to Montauk for the day <laughs> and with our dog, you know. <laughs> you pinching yourself? Yeah, totally. Well, the, you know, the, those things are kind of cool. But, you know, the, the cooler thing for me with that is that I, I grew up listening to Jimmy Buffett with my dad. Yeah. I grew up listen, listening to Jackson Brown, became Jackson, Jackson Brown, good friends with Jackson. Um, in, in fact, Jackson went to Fiji with us once, and he gave me his guitar at the end of the trip. Unfortunately, it was stolen out of my house a couple of years later. But um, Did your dad ever get to meet Buffett? Uh, my dad never met Buffett, no. But when I met Jimmy, like the second or third day I met him, maybe even the first day I met him, I, I almost was in tears. And I said, this Absolutely. is... I said, this is, uh, you know, one of those moments in life. I, I said, you remind me so much of my dad, um, both in the way you talk, because you guys both had this kind of funny little southern accent, but also because I, I lived my whole childhood fishing and camping with my dad and surfing and listening to Jimmy Buffett. Yeah. And um, I said, so it's just so crazy to meet you now and um, have this connection with you after having that with my father for so long. You yeah. Know? And at this point, my dad had been gone for about eight or nine years yeah but uh and and uh you know he's just a great great guy just a really fun guy to be around and so you know things like that for me are really special and and fun but um it's definitely not just uh you know people that people not famous people um you know just the people i've met around the world the houses i stay at with friends and um you know, the faces I see year after year, um, or maybe don't see for years. Um, mm. I had a friend here in Australia. He lived on King Island. Uh, his name was Jeremy, but his, his, uh, nickname was Wire. Everyone called him Wire. In fact, I was with Eddie when I met him and, um, we flew down to King Island to go surf for a couple of days and just kind of hit it off with this guy. He didn't surf much anymore. He'd had two heart attacks and he was just more like the kind of the chauffeur when you get to king island you're a surfer he comes in kind of shows you around and yeah, he, cool. he became friends with all the surfers there yep and um one of the original guys surfing down there and uh we um i don't know we just had this kind of special bond over the years i only ever saw him maybe two times maybe two times in my life but we kept in touch for almost 10 years uh probably for over i guess it would be over 10 years and he passed away like two years ago and um he called me, uh, he sent me a text actually, and he said, hey, it's been great knowing you, I just want to say bye, um, I, I'm going to go into the surgery and I don't think I'm going to wake up, and, um, that's heavy, and I just started crying, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, mm. text him back, said, can I, can I call you, can we talk real quick at least, just to hear your voice, you know, mm. and, uh, he said, yeah, absolutely, so I call him back, and he says, yeah, Kelly, like, you know, my heart's getting weak, and, and, um, and uh, I haven't slept in five or seven days now, and uh, I'm having these radical heart palpitations. And he goes, honestly, I'd, I'd feel better if I wasn't around because I've, I'm just in a bad way. And yeah, I said, all right. And we talked for a minute, and I said my goodbyes. And uh, two days later, he texted me. He said, I made it. <laughs> 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 and uh, it's just had tears rolling in my eyes. Yeah. Jeez. And uh, but, um, unfortunately, he did actually passed away since then he passed away about um six or eight months after that but um it was cool because he kind of got to experience that like say bye to everyone and then mm. have that enjoyment of being back and and um um 
uh, just a, a funny side story because Eddie was with us. Ed, Eddie Vedder was with us when we, on that trip when we met him. And, and um, he said to Eddie, he goes, hey, uh, after about a day of knowing him, he says, he goes, um, you know, I, when I had my second heart attack, I woke up singing Alive by Pearl Jam. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he goes, I literally, it was the first words I said, I started singing the chorus to Alive. And uh, Eddie was like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe it. And he goes, he goes, well, now I'm really going to blow you away because my real name is Jeremy. And that's your other big song. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. You're <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. And so Eddie just kind of hugged him. So Eddie and I always, the, the three of us always had this kind of special thing. And, you know, Wire was just this, this uh, you know, he, he was just a, just a bloke. Just a guy we met, and, and he was real special in our lives. And um, what, do you, what do you look for in human connection, Kelly? What do you look for in a friend? <clears throat> A sense of very softness in you, you know, someone that goes overseas with someone like Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam and, you know, meets a bloke who's just the dude that operates the tour over there and, mm. you know, has this kind of human emotion I can sense in you right now. Yeah. What, yeah, what actually, are you searching I, for? I'm kind of teared up talking about him because he's such a yeah. such a cool guy, you know. Um, um, well, what was it about him, I should say? Maybe that makes it easier for you. It's not such a broad question. Well, I... You know, I find myself uh, gravitating towards people who, who, uh, are, you know, I I like to be around people who are good people. Yeah. I, I don't like to be around. Um, not that I don't have any of these people, but you know, I don't like to be around people who are just like drug addicts and idiots and and uh, you know don't have a bigger picture on life. Yes. Uh, you know, I enjoy people who have a grasp of of life and they want to better themselves and um, they want to send a positive message out to the people around them. Yep. Whether it's to the world or to their just to their partner, you know, yep, or their kids or whatever. Um, I uh, there's a guy who taught me how to play guitar um, when I was in my late teens, and uh, he's just a really good guy, surfer. He was a Vietnam vet, uh, helicopter pilot, um, and uh, just a just an all around really cool guy. Married for. 40, 50 years, uh, has two daughters close to my age. And, uh, I never had a godfather. So I actually asked him to be my godfather. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, but he was just a guy like, I'd love to call him up and ask him advice about life. You know, he's been through a lot and he sees it real simply and clearly. And, you know, if I need, if if I only have two minutes and I need to talk to somebody, I can call this guy and say, Hey, what do I do about this? Well, you know what? Shit, man. I don't know. Just try this. <laughs> you talk about, you know, um, drug dealers and, you know, what we, what we would refer to as a dead shit here in Australia, the, the hanger honorers. Has that been one well, of the... Well, you know, beyond that, those are people too who are struggling with, uh, with, with problems in their own lives and it's led them down a certain path, um, you know, probably the wrong one or, you know, maybe not the best one, but uh, it doesn't make them any less of a person. It just, you know, not... Not necessarily the kind of people I like to hang around. Yeah, that you resonate with. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Talk to us about Adenone. Um, you obviously left a very <laughs> lucrative and long-term relationship with Quicksilver um, that you'd been with for well, how long? When did you sign with Quicksilver? I signed with Quicksilver. I literally signed my contract on the beach at Trestles in 1990 when I was 18. When I was making the movie Black and White. When mm. I won that contest, it was in Black and White. Yep. Um, and... Uh, so from 1990 until that two years ago or three years ago, long <laughs> time. Yeah, yep, very um, long time. Twenty twenty four and a half years it was, I think, something like that. Um, and 
Well, I was when I was with when I was with Quicksilver, I started to feel you know, after doing one thing for so long, you, any job, I don't care if it's painting, I don't care if it's accounting, I don't care if it's surfing and having the greatest job in the world. Um, you know, certain things get monotonous or boring and unchallenging or whatever. And uh, yep. I felt at Quicksilver that I didn't want to just be like get a paycheck every month. I wanted to have a little more like ownership. And when I say ownership, I just mean like um, not like necessarily owning, uh, you know, on a money side. I just meant like, uh, like a, at least I mean, creative involvement. Well, creatively yeah. involved, um, understanding the whole you know, understanding the supply chain, how, you know, who works doing what and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to be more intimately involved with things. So we actually, we started a brand with Quicksilver called VSTR. And, um, it, uh, uh, it, it actually had pretty good success. We made some great clothes. We weren't able to completely do what we wanted with say organic cottons and like sourcing textiles and product the way we wanted to. But, um, it was a, it was a good start. And, and what, why couldn't you? Is that just the size of the corporation and these things obviously <coughs> start to outweigh from a gross profit perspective? Or yeah, more or less. It was it was um, Quicksilver had um, like I don't know thirteen or fifteen brands underneath yep. the umbrella of Quicksilver at the time. Um, a new CEO came in by the name of Andrew Mooney, and he was from he was a sort of outsider to the industry. He had worked for Disney um, uh, in the past, and uh, you know, Quicksilver went through a lot of different restructuring, um, different, although they were publicly owned, a big piece of them was owned by a smaller company that put money into buying a lot of stock. And I, I they were putting a lot of pressure on Quick getting to a certain size and and, and uh, efficiency, Yeah, I should say. Yeah. And um, anyways, uh, long story short, they took their like 13 brands down to three. Um, which was just Roxy, Quicksilver, and, and DC were remaining. So they didn't want to put time and energy and money into Something all these else. other things. These yeah. are these are the things making money. We know how to to run them efficiently. We can we can actually make them more efficient. We, you know, in a lot of ways, makes a lot of sense. Hmm. Um, uh, you know, unfortunately, our VSTR brand, which was growing and increasing, getting a pretty strong following and presence. Uh, Basically, everyone at Quicksilver is wearing it <laughs> mm. um, uh, in the offices, and um, uh, but we we started to get some traction and um, started to grow a little bit. We had our own we had a flagship store down in Byron, and um, uh, they d- well that was just one of the many brands they decided to either sell or just stop outright. So ours uh, was stopped outright. Yeah, and um. um but John Moore, who was the designer who I worked with on that brand, um, he and I kept in contact. And then as my contract started to run out, I wanted to dabble again. I wanted to dive back into making clothes. And pe- a lot of people were like, why would you want to do that? It's such a hard thing to do. And I go, well, you know, it's made me most of my money, most of my income. I should know more about it. I should, <laughs> uh, you know, I should be more intimately involved in what this whole thing is. And <clears throat> um so when my contract was coming up with Quicksilver, I said I wanted to do that again. It was in my contract that I could, and um, they—I uh, think the easiest way to explain it is—they didn't see it as necessarily a 
an ally. They saw it as a challenge to the brand as opposed to an addition. Yeah, uh, it didn't to, work with it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah it makes they, sense. They thought it would be more of a, a, a takeaway than to give to the brand. And, yep. Um, so I decided to part ways amicably. Um, I love the guys at Quick. They, they've, you know, so many people in the family there over the years have done so much for me and helped me win titles and make my life easier and, um, you know, a, a way above and beyond just professional, you know, to yeah. the personal. And um, so I, you know, I've always loved the brand and and uh, love what they've provided for me and 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 given to my life and you know all the projects we've done over the years and stuff. It was really 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 difficult to leave. It was actually uh, you know brought me to tears, um, brought my bosses to tears. We sat on the phone crying with each other. It was mm. a really. I was actually here in Margaret River, and it was uh, the last day of March, and the next day was April Fool's, and um, that was when we announced it, and everyone thought it was a joke. Mm. And um, um, and in some ways, it was really it felt like it was, you know. But uh, I, you know, I just had these desires to do something different, and so that leads us to Outer Known. Yep. And um, so and Outer Known for our listeners is a a uh, clothing brand, textiles brand <laughs> that Kelly's teamed up with. Is it John that you look, we worked yeah. with? Yep. Yeah, John. John Moore and I got back together. Um, yep. Worked on this. We actually, uh, before my contract ran out with Quicksilver, we were working on it for months, maybe six months prior to that, because mm-hmm. um, we wanted to be off and running, if it was something we were going to do with or without, uh, without them. Yeah. And um, uh, we found a partner to back us financially that was um, going uh, going to help in that way, and also with uh, production and all sorts of things behind the scenes, hiring. Um, all the ins and outs of the business and just in that, that industry. Um, so caring, caring's a brand, uh, uh, caring's a, a French brand, mm-hmm. um, privately owned family brand that, um, works with 20 some odd different brands and they, they wanted to help us develop the brand. Um, they also own Volcom. They own P- Puma and Cobra golf. Big brands. Um, yeah, a bunch of different brands, Brioni and, uh, yeah, I mean, the list goes on and on. And um, so we we saw them as a great partner. They they really liked the ideas we had, and we started working together. But you know, just to, in a nutshell, what I wanted to do, what John and I and our other couple of partners wanted to do, um, I I sort of had a vision, I guess, and everyone supported that. And we, you know, we wanted to go um, as much recycled and organic uh, materials as possible, mm. textiles and sourcing. Um, uh, but beyond that, I wanted to work with, uh, you know, hand-picked facilities, the production facilities around the around the world to work with social compliance so that people are, have good working t- conditions, uh, good living wage, hmm. um, uh, you know, insurances, those sort of things. So, um, and is this where your Slovenia partner came in? A uh, Slovenia partner is part of that. They're, they're, they're one uh, That's group. mental, isn't it? Like, seriously, for, for our listeners... They've got a partner out there that you you what you basically get your um, materials or some of your materials well, from for some ni- of your products. We get our nylon from. So all the fishing nets, most most all the fishing nets around the world are made out of a material called nylon six. Nylon six is easily recyclable, mm. but most um, fishing nets that are more than I want to say it's uh, over three years old. Once they become about four years old, they basically just dump them in the ocean and mm. let them go to the bottom. That's a tragedy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but this company uh, called Equinil is uh, a brand that actually uh, recycle them 
um, bring the nets in, cut them down, melt them down, re-spin them into threading, and um, there you have your nylon. So it's just a completely recycled material. And Unbelievable. So, and are you happy with the quality of the product? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it's just nylon if you like nylon, you know, <laughs> but it's recycled and, and um, you know, we, f- we feel like, uh, you know, that's just one part. It's it's one material we, we use of dozens of materials, but um, we went and toured the factory and spent a day there, and the guys were blown away. They're like, "No one's ever come and visited us that works that uses this stuff." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I bet it was uh, it was it was a really cool thing to see all the uh, you know uh, post industrial waste and the way they were recycling all these things. Um, you know, everything from carpet and fishing nets down to you know furniture pieces and um. You know, it's a, it's a, man, we make a lot of shit in this world. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And then we bury it. And we bury it and we dump it. And we, you know, that, that makes me think of, uh, Nev Hyman, who you might, I don't know if you know Nev. Yeah, but not, Nev, but, yep. Yeah. Nev's a surfboard shaper. Old but, school. Yeah. Back in the 80s. Yeah. But he's working on this home, this home building project called Nev Homes, where they're basically going and rummaging through, um, landfills and taking all the plastic, melting it down, burning burning trash at like thousands of degrees so it basically turns into these inert gases is that right yeah wow and then melting um and re-spinning re whatever uh re-melting the, all the plastic waste they can find down and turning it into flooring um bricks uh you can build cheap houses out of it you can make walkways Go it's, Niv. It's that's amazing quite quite amazing um that it's being reused repurposed in a, in a really cool way and um, we're actually even looking at it to potentially use it uh, for the for the lining in um, in our wave pools, if the, if possible. That's I mean, this is super early to even mention, but um, it was an idea. And if we could if we could work out a way to do that and implement that material somehow uh, with the waves we're making, we would try. So it's it's early days, but we're going to look into it. And where'd the wave pool come from? When did this whole crazy concept come to be? Um, in about. Um, in about 2004 or five, a friend of mine, Matt Keckley, who was an old surfer on tour and, and, um, Matt was one of my, one of my first surfboard shapers. One of my, he was my second coach I ever had <coughs> as an amateur when I was young. And he's really my mentor, took me to Hawaii with my brother when I was 12, um, showed me videos from Australia. He used to come to Australia and surf every year and bring home hours of videos. And I'd sit there in front of his TV all day and he'd be like, all right, it's on. Here's the other tape. There's another tape. You can sit there for hours. My mom's in the back room and he'd go do his thing. <clears throat> but, um, um, the, so Matt calls me in about Oh four Oh five. And he says, uh, he says, you gotta see this guy's wave pool invention. He's made this circular wave called Surf the Ring. And so, so I... So we're going back that far, 2004. Yeah. Wow. Um, and I, I think it was '05. I finally met this guy and went to his house and saw his prototype. And it was basically like, imagine a donut-shaped pool. The outside wall has these these uh, wave generators of some sort, <clears throat> and uh, like pistons. And it would just push water, and they'd work in unison. And so they would create this wall of water that would go go around the inside island and break like a, a wave. And um, it was really rudimentary, but it was a really exciting idea. And I could I could understand the vision of it. And uh, Matt's like, you know, you got to do this. You got the right networking and connections to make this stuff kind of 
come to life, you should go talk to this guy. So I went and met the guy, Kevin, and um, spent some time with him. Long story short, pretty quickly we came to an, an agreement to uh, study his technology, potentially use it, and um, try to bring it to market. Quicksilver backed me. Um, in fact, Bob McKnight himself, who's the president and CEO of Quicksilver, personally backed me with some funds to help study it. Um, I tried to put a consortium together of everyone in the industry. I went to all the different brands, the Billabongs, the Volcoms, the Quicksilvers, the, the Hurleys, the, everyone I could think of in the industry um, to come together. Um, even uh, Marty Hoffman from Hoffman Fabrics that supply fabrics to all the companies. The, you know, the list went on, and I tried to think of everyone I could. I basically contacted um, SEMA, which is Surf Industry Manufacturers Association, and I looked at a list of who all those people were and connected through that. I invited them all to come have a meeting, see what this was. Let's all just, like, favored nations put money in and make this, and we can, you know, potentially grow surfing in, in uh, a man-made form. Yeah. And we could all share in it. And um, everyone was like, oh, that's a great idea, that's a great idea, this is so exciting. And then, you know, you just don't hear back. <laughs> like you know, when it comes to like, oh, let's get some money together. You know, yeah. that's uh, and crickets. Uh, understandably, because it's it's not a tiny project. It's not a cheap project. Um, so I spent a few years. My manager and I spent a few years, kind of going around talking to people, trying to raise money. We we started getting things going. We worked with this guy named Adam Fincham at US, USC um, College in in LA. He. Uh, was a professor of waves, basically, light waves, sound waves, um, all types of waves, ocean waves, studying energy and how they work and how to create them and blah, blah. Um, he started to work with us on the early funds that we got. Um, the, the, the surf manufacturers all didn't come together to work on it, um, so Quicksilver said, we'll back you. And I said, well, I, don't, I want this to be like a, a bigger thing. I don't want it to be a Quicksilver thing. You know, even though I love my Quicksilver family, I, I didn't mm-hmm. want to be a, I didn't want it to just be seen as just like one company's thing. I wanted it to be like a sur- surfing's thing, you know. So, um, um, but you know, it just just turned out that there were certain people who got it and certain people who didn't or didn't see the vision or didn't understand it or whatever. So we set out on our own, brought in a few private partners, private money, and um, yeah. Long story short, December 2015, we. Uh, we started riding the first waves. And, Mental. Uh, filmed, Had that feel. Filmed it and um, released the footage a couple weeks later. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, <clears throat> I don't know there's many people in the world who exper- who will uh, be fortunate enough to uh, experience the, the emotions I had that day. It was tough. It was um, because it was so exciting. And also, in some way, I, I felt like our team had like a... Uh, um, it's evolutionary, isn't it? Well, it's next yeah, level. Yeah, yeah. I felt like they had kind of created a, an, an atomic bomb or something. You know, mm-hmm. it's like because, like, um, I don't know. Any technology can be used for good, or, or could course. be seen yeah, yeah. as bad. You know, it could be yep. there could be aver- environmental issues around it. There could be, uh, you know, is this true to the spirit of surfing and the essence of what surfing is and finding a wave out there that's in nature and you know, the spiritual side of it, of us is like we're we're actually riding something that's completely free and made by the world. Mm. given to us you know so to go and manufacture that artificially was cheating it cheating it in some way yeah so the, all those 
all that flooded in equally as much as the excitement I had seeing that first wave roll down down the whole way. I've seen the video lake. of you, and I can see you grabbing your head, and <clears throat> just disbelief. I couldn't. I had seen footage. I had already seen some pictures and video in the days prior, but I had no idea that it was going to look like that and what it was. I. How does the wave or the wave feel to ride? Compare it with a normal wave elsewhere. Does it feel the same? Does it surf the same? Or is it different? Uh, Energy-wise, it got the same. It's just um. You know, it reminds when you when you surf it, it, it will remind you of uh, you know a lot of different waves. It, I mean, ultimately, I wanted it to be like Kira or like something on the Gold Coast, those kind of waves, because I I grew up just loving those hollow, intense, small waves that were fun and and exciting, but not going to kill you. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, Kira as a kid was always my favorite wave, so I, I did I wanted it to look reminiscent of that kind of a wave. So that was how we designed it. Mm. We, we we wanted it when people saw the shape of the wave to look like nothing else anyone had ever created. So we could have made the wave taller, much taller maybe, but we wanted to make it rounder and thicker. So that was kind of the idea. Where's your favorite wave now? Um, That's tough. I mean, it's hard to pass up pipeline. It's a right and a left and it's yeah. got everything you want pretty much. But like, I, if I had to pick one wave to surf the rest of my life, it'd probably be cloud break in Fiji because yeah. it's just... You can get the tropical. You can surf perfect. it from one to fifty feet, and it's warm, and it's got all the speed you need. And you can get a barrel. You can do the biggest turn of your life. Yeah, um, it's you know it's pretty much got. You've also you've also got perfect scores out there. <laughs> you know, I've had some waves out there before, <laughs> haven't you? Absolutely. <clears throat> what regrets have you got in your life, Kelly? Either either in your personal life or in your career, do you have any regrets, or would you do it all the same again? Um. Yeah, I mean. You hear people say I have no regrets because I wouldn't be who I am, and all that. I think if you if you have no regrets, you haven't learned anything. Mm. But, you know, I think that um, I have lots of regrets. You know, um, I probably won't dive into all of them. You know, but <laughs> of course I mean, not. everyone has personal regrets, and, and you know, things maybe they could have done differently in their life, but you didn't know at the time, and you know, you had to go through whatever you had to go through to learn it. And um, I, I, I think if I could give myself advice from like if i go back 30 years and give myself advice it, it'd probably be just to to um you know be more lighthearted about life enjoy enjoy things a little more like don't take things so seriously i i think i was a pretty serious kid when i was when i was young i was really a funny like i wanted to be a comedian you know i wanted to <laughs> i was really lighthearted and goofy all the time and 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 like kind of a class clown and and um actually used to get in fights a lot in school and then um I think when my parents split up, I got real serious. I came, I became a much more so, sort of serious internal, internalized person in in some sense. And um, and uh, I don't know, life got serious. You know, when your parents are talking about splitting up or they don't love each other anymore or something. You know, it's like it's rocks like, your foundation, oh, doesn't it's it? It's the worst thing in the world. And mm. um, so I I wish I could have eased up then and realized that you know life was going to be better with them apart. And, you know, I had a lot of fear around that. I, 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 it created a lot of fear of, an, of abandonment for me, um, which, you know, affected relationships I've had in my life and stuff. And, and um, you know, I mean, I have insecurities like any other person. Um, yeah, so, and it, you know, and, and now, now, this day and age, we're, you're so exposed to media social media and those kind of things that it's it's real easy to hear everything everyone hears you know thinks about you in in the mm, moment to shy yeah yep. and and uh you know people have people are unscrupulous you know they don't 
they don't really think about that uh, what they could be saying might hurt you or affect you. or Like or, your comment on the shark culling recently in Reunion Island that got yeah. completely taken out of context. and Well, somewhat. I mean, look, it wasn't my, uh, my best shining moment. Um, and, uh, you know, I've also been going through some, uh, you know, personal disconnection with a lot of things that that are inherently part of who I am and um and I didn't come out with a uh, what I wrote was not like a I wasn't trying to put out a public statement Mm. I wrote I wrote a comment on a friend's Instagram page because he had lost another friend he I think he's a bull shock I think he's known five or six of the eight people who've been killed there in the last six years Mm. and um and I was actually, <laughs> the weird thing about it, I was actually laying in bed, fourth day of having a fever. I'd, I got sick on my birthday, and so this is about four days later, and it, it was early in the morning, about 5 a.m., and I woke up, and I was just, I couldn't sleep, and I was looking at my phone, and I had this throbbing fever, I'm just sweating, and um, kind of delirious and dehydrated, and I read that, and I also got a text from my a friend of mine's daughter, and um, it was a picture of the guy dead on the beach with uh, half his leg eaten off. And uh, I just felt frustrated and helpless and hurt, you know. And um, and it was just, the it just came to mind. Just, I don't know, it was just like, I mean, everyone, probably everyone on this earth at some point has said, I want to kill that person or I want to, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, but if you say it on camera, you're, you know, the worst in the world. Yeah, and so it was just one of those moments, and um, you know, I'm I've been a I've been a an, an ocean advocate my whole life, um, and uh, yeah, it's I just got caught in a I got caught in a torrent and uh, a maelstrom of uh, of anger, you know, and and that was all focused on me because I'm a, a known person and I said something that was that seemed un- environmentally unsound and you know uh, I think there's some uh I think there's some definitely some some righteous comments about it uh towards me but I started to get um I started to get attacked I I mean I I had a lot of people tell me they hope I die um they hope my Jeez. family dies wow um go kill myself uh, I mean horrible things because I said something about bull sharks in in a place that they've been killing people and I don't I don't think that necessarily what I said was right but I I feel um, frustrated because we don't have an answer and people aren't going to stop using the ocean and it the other thing was people thought it was about myself and um, it wasn't I don't surf from Union Island and it's, it's the only place I was talking about this specifically for because mm. it does seem like the sharks have gotten a taste for people there. It's what happened. are your thoughts on sharks? You know, like I know here on the West Coast, they're bad. Look over in Ballina, places <laughs> like that. Yeah. People won't into the water half the time. Yeah. Have um, you got thoughts? Is it like a, you know, a marine ecology issue? Have you spoken to experts around these issues? Yeah, I have. I've spoken a lot. In fact, um, uh, I've been really vocal about freeing orcas. I think orcas should all be put in, in um, open ocean pens. Uh, sanctuaries of some sort. I think dolphins should never be be allowed in um, marine aquariums. I think um, you know shark finning is uh, is one of the despicable. Worst. It's a despicable <laughs> crime against nature. Yeah, um, absolutely. Sharks fin off and let them drown in the water. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, I saw this thing on this woman killing cane toads recently, and um, she's invi- she was like living off the land and stuff in, in the outback and up north somewhere, and she she uh, was killing cane toads, and the, the guy interviewing her said, it seems like you would have such trouble killing things. And she goes, I can only do it because I know they're a pest to this environment, and they're bad for the environment, and they're killing all the other wildlife. Mm. And she said, I think anything that dies should die fast, yeah. and it, they shouldn't suffer. And shark finning is a despicable horrible act and um it should be it should be stopped it should it's it's a crime mm-hmm. against the environment i really believe it is and um um my my feelings about sharks i i don't have a fear of uh being attacked by a shark I, in fact i i've said it before that you know if a great white eats me i'd be honored and, and i stand <laughs> by that and really i mean if that's my way to go it's, it, that's that's my karma or that's my destiny or that's my you know that's what's supposed to happen i'm i don't um I don't take any stupid chances, but I, I also don't live in fear and make it stop me from doing the things that I love to do. So, yeah. Um, but I, you know, my, I just think in that specific situation in reunion, you have a very small area of coast where a lot of people are being attacked and killed. And, um, you know, some people just take a hard line and say, Hey, people shouldn't be in the ocean. They need to stop going in the ocean. Hmm. And if they take, they go in the ocean, it's their risk. And, and I, I uh, I agree. If you go in the ocean, it's your risk. I don't know that we should go decimate the ocean and kill a bunch of stuff. Um, I just I wish there was some uh, some sort of further either technology or solution to it. You know, because then you start to get into like netting beaches. I mean, they had a netted beach there. A kid got eaten inside the nets <laughs> last year. Jay, um, I shouldn't laugh, but it's almost uncanny, isn't it? Yeah, there was one hole, and the shark knew how to get through there. They they found there was one hole in the nets. But, you know, nets kill a whole bunch of other, you know, sea turtles and fish and sharks and dolphins, and, you know, they end up killing everything that gets mm. trapped in them. So, you know, it's a tr- that's, a, that's a touchy one, you know. Um, you want to keep people safe, but you... You know, you you do have to look out for the natural world as well, and I I think it's we need to figure out ways in in all areas to to handle that. You know, I'm I'm really questioning um, eating meat. Um, you know, I've been an omnivore my whole life, and uh, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking real seriously about moving away from from any animal products. Um, you know, like we talked about milk earlier. Yeah. Milk's a crime against cows. I'm sorry, it is. And there's yep. pus in milk, and it causes cancer, and also you don't just... like drinking pus. That surprises me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, that's just the cold hard facts about it. Yeah, and people need to stop drinking milk. It's just, it's it wasn't intended for you, it, and like you said, it wasn't intended for people that are not babies anymore. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, you know. I've also read there's not enough calcium in milk to digest the protein that's in milk. So mm. when they talk about there's calcium, all the calcium, well, the, the calcium won't even cover the the protein the pro, protein breakdown in the digestive tract. Mm. So there's there's a lot of problems. It's basically a dead food once it's pasteurized, isn't it? Absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you're right. Milk's chock full of short chain fatty acids that are beneficial for the immune system and amazing antimicrobials. But the minute you pasteurize it, dead. Yeah, yeah. So um, any any benefit that was there is now lost. Yeah, and then it's illegal to drink raw milk. Yeah, it's you right. know, so they've made it illegal. Go figure. Well, it's only illegal. Well, we can get into that whole thing, but it's, <laughs> it's really only illegal so that the shelf life is longer. You know what? It's yeah, exactly right. And it's sold as bath milk anyway, and people <laughs> yeah. buy it and drink it anyway. And, yeah. you know, it's another whole thing. Hey Kelly, a personal question. Um, a couple of times you've led back 
to the separation of your parents mm. and you know, the demise of that and the impact that it's had on you. And a question that interests me is, I know you're a father mm. and I know you're a devout father. Um, Taylor, I think your daughter's name is, Taylor, off memory. Yeah. Um, how has the whole thing been for you coming from a broken home and then having to travel full time and have Taylor in a similar position to what you grew up in? Yeah, I've... Um I say that with love and respect, by the way. No, it's, it's, it's no fine. judgment. It's it's a it's a reality. Um, I try to be realistic and honest about the situation, mm. as, as well as um, uh, um, you know, keep a certain level of privacy about my life as well. Of course, um, my daughter will be twenty one in June. Wow! Yeah, you old um, man. I know. I gotta have a big old party for her. <laughs> I'll be in Fiji when she turns twenty one, so maybe she'll come to Fiji with me. I don't know. Excellent. Um, it's a it's a tough one i mean she and her mother and i weren't planning on having a child together um mm. she got pregnant and she wanted to have a baby and we we had taylor and um we uh you know we made an agreement early on we were going to be friends and co-parent and um do the best we could and uh um you know but being 24 um i was i was a, basically like a year uh, when I found out that uh, I was having a, a daughter, I was about a year out of a, a relationship that was uh, really heartbreaking for me. And um, and uh, so the the uh, then all of a sudden, being 24, thinking I'm going to travel for X number of years as a single guy around <laughs> the world. Now yeah. like, I'm going to have a daughter or it's a child. Right. I didn't know I was going to have a daughter yet, but I was going to have a child and. Um, and and also try to go achieve my goals in life. You know, I I look back at my mom, uh, who she I think she had a lot of dreams and a lot of things she wanted to do that never turned into goals for her because she was raising three boys mm. on her on five hundred bucks a week. You know, and somehow making that work. <laughs> um, industrious woman, industrious, yeah. And uh, um, you know, and, and and it caused her to have to forget a lot of herself for all this year. So. That that definitely had an effect on me, and um, um, yeah, but it was uh, I wasn't in a rush to ha- to to have children at a young age, and then when I did, it was really um, like, oh, I gotta grow up. Gosh, <laughs> I gotta grow up right now. <laughs> How do I do that? <laughs> and that was scary. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, and I I had uh, I probably had equal parts fear and excitement when I mm. found out I was gonna have a, a child. And, I um, still remember holding my first daughter. No, I'm thinking, shit, what do I do with this thing? <laughs> how, how did you feel? <laughs> Similar? Yeah, it was uh, It was just surreal seeing her the first time. Um, it just, uh, I don't know. You can't explain that to people, really. It's mm. like, it happens once, you know. Um, and uh, it was, um, you know, it's been tough in a way because I I wasn't there as much as I'd like to have been with with my daughter and I know I wasn't there as much as she would have liked me to have been um and we we actually sat down and had a talk about that a couple of years ago and she it was the first time my daughter ever just went off on me and you know she she put me in my place you know she's like I needed you there for certain things and you know there's some, a lot of things you weren't there for me with mm. and mm. I'm pissed about it mm. and uh and I was like okay Bring it on. Let mm. me have it. I, you know, I'm waiting for I'm, it. I'm waiting. I knew this. Some of this. I knew at some point this was going to come. And, yeah. And it actually, um, 
I think it allowed us to obviously have a more open uh, relationship with each other and um, and 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 have a closer have have more closeness. You know, I mean, it was really as a dad, it was really difficult to hear those things come from my daughter's mouth you mm-hmm. know but it's truth right and it keeps you both on that level yeah for sure and um uh but you know it was, i think it was healthy definitely healthy for she and i together um so yeah i mean like i was a young guy out uh traveling the world trying to achieve my goals and um uh you know having having a child right in the middle of that um with a woman i wasn't with mm. and we lived several hours drive from each other uh when i did have time off and was home so it was it was a little tricky um and you know she, her mother and i had a few um as you do you uh you know you have a few some, moments yeah a few moments you <laughs> have a few um misunderstandings with each other yeah. and uh that doesn't make it any easier for the for the child to understand that so um you know it's, you do your I, best yeah you do your best but you know I mean, that's things you look back and go, gosh, you know, I'd like to do it maybe this way or that way. I'd I'd like to Mm. be able to understand this little argument we had or, like, you know, uh, express this more to my daughter or, you know, yeah, I I mean, I look back on my life and I'm a a perfectionist, you know. I think uh, in my family I thought that if I was better it would fix everything and it would, you know, bring my parents happiness and maybe keep them together and Mm. that kind of crap, you know. Um, so that that spilled over into obviously into my competitive life. Um, well, congratulations on that because <laughs> <laughs> your perfectionism paid dividends, my friend. <laughs> Big dividends. Yeah, it it, it did. Um, it, it all comes at a cost, you know. It, of course, there's a cost for everything, and and uh, you know I have tricky dynamics with both of my brothers. Um, you know, we don't really see super eye to eye at this point in our lives, which is unfortunate. We're in, you know my my older brother's 48 i'm 45 my younger brother's 39 mm. um so you'd think at that age you'd have it all sorted out with each other but you know we <laughs> we still we still have our our disagreements and and uh um so yeah i mean i i i i think i want to just keep working on uh you know when i have a good picture of of my life and and um a clarity about myself and and all that kind of stuff then you know the most important things are like making uh relationships with people right yeah so so at 45 years of age with the 11 world titles under your belt what motivates you now what drives you in your life it's not money it's not fortune it's not fame what is it what motivates you um Surely not a twelfth world title. <laughs> I know you're in the running, but you know, like, yeah. what? What's the motivator? Where do you get that juice from now? Uh, progression. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to the eight year old. Yeah, go back. Yeah, I mean, I I still want to get better. You know, I, I what I in the physical in the physical world. Yeah, look, those all those uh, a lot of the things you mentioned. Um, those are. I think those are driving factors for everybody on some level, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, you know, I have, I have been afforded a lot more in this life than I ever thought I'd have. As a kid, I I never imagined I would even be able to buy a house. You yeah. know, yeah. Let alone travel around the world and <laughs> own a few places, and you know, have the freedom to go wherever I want, and uh, you know, that kind of stuff. It's it's been spectacular. Um, 
uh, I think the thing that motivates me, I, I still, you know, I, I, I really, I love my craft. I love surfing. I love, um, I love the idea that I can get better. Um, what do I, you love about it? I, I, I w- was going to say though, that I think the thing that motivates me most at this point, I've been carrying some injuries for a while and, um, it's a daily issue for me, especially with my back. And, um, so I'm, I'm really trying to get myself back to good, strong health because I'm not surfing like I should be, to be honest. I mean, I'm surfing okay here and there, but, um, I can't surf enough to be at my top level, uh, and and it's becoming a real issue for against me. the John Johns of the world, the young and yeah. youthful. Mm. Well, you know, I I see those guys surf and I'm blown away because they do some rad stuff, but it it doesn't feel out of my grasp. You know? Absolutely not. No, I, I don't feel like they're doing stuff that's unattainable or I can't do. It. They're doing, but they are doing stuff that I I probably can't do right now mm. because uh, I'm I uh, I can't surf enough to to. So what's the problem with your back? What do you, what are you nursing? Um, just tightness in my body. I mm-hmm. think I just need to dive in. And, I mean, I've been getting like real intense body work lately. Um, I also took about three, four weeks where I didn't surf very much right before the Gold Coast contest last month, mm-hmm. uh, earlier this month. And, um, and that allowed my back to just settle and rest and not just be like in constant tension. Mm. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I just didn't surf and golf for a few weeks, basically very much. And, What's the um, longest you've ever gone without surfing? Uh, about six weeks. Okay. Why? Yeah. Um, I found golf. I was golfing a lot. <laughs> Just playing golf. Yep. Yeah. And I was between contests and I was pretty burnt out, you know, after like the, through those early mid nineties, I surfed so much all the time that, um, I was just burnt on surfing at times. And so when contests weren't on, sometimes I just felt like I didn't want to surf. Mm. I, just, I, I liked having that time off to just get away from it. So when um, you surf now away from comp, Kelly, so when you get your, you know, a couple of months off the end of the year type of thing, do you surf for the stake of surfing or do you surf to still improve your craft for next year's contests? Um, both. Yeah. Yeah, both. But, um, I mean, in that whole interim, I'm, I'm working on surfboards and designs, getting ready for the year ahead. But I would say for the first, for the first month after the contest stop in December, I'm just surfing for fun completely 100% for fun altogether. Mm. And then I take February and I think, okay, I got to get, really get my boards together and start surfing good again yep. and um, get my body together and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, start thinking more intently about the diet and all that kind of stuff. But I, I sort of, I almost take February and think of it as like training camp month mm. in that way. But um, this year I got, didn't really totally go to plan. I got, um, I got sick. Like I said, I had like I had a flu, really bad flu for like over about a week. I was probably lucky. I mean, if I wasn't real healthy, I probably would have been with the flu for two or three weeks, but Mm. I luckily got through it in about a week. But I had like, I think I had a fever for five straight days. It was pretty gnarly. Mm. And um, I haven't felt like that for a long time. I mean, I I woke up one morning and I thought I was hungover because I drank a bit that night on my birthday. (laughs) And I was like, I didn't drink this much. (laughs) It wasn't one of those nights. <laughs> hey, can, I, can I ask you a quick personal question? It's one that I've, I've always wondered. I want to know how a young kid from Cocoa Beach, Florida, who you know <coughs> grows up surfing, grovel, you know, beach beach break, grovel. How did you go paddling out pipeline the first time, or, or, or any mm. wave like it? How did you go handling waves of consequence like that? I uh, 
from an anxiety perspective, because yeah. I, I don't doubt you were shitting bricks at some point. Well, I know backdoor was a challenge for you. For it's so funny, I was in the this would have been the mid late nineties. I was out. I went out surfing this outer reef with some friends in Hawaii, and it was like forty foot phases. You know, huge. And um, <coughs> it was probably I don't know. It was one of the biggest days I'd ever surfed, and uh, I had. I watched this one wave barreling and it seemed like the lip took three seconds to hit the bottom and then it was just this boom. I could not, I couldn't even fathom how big this barrel was in this wave and how much energy there was. And I watched the wave afterwards and how much white water there was. And then the next wave come through and I thought, fuck, there was so much energy in that thing, so much force in the white water. I don't think I could possibly come to the surface before the next wave. Mm. And then probably not for the next wave again you know yeah there was just so much energy in the ocean that day so i might die so i may die yeah and um i was surfing with the three malloy brothers and shane dorian just five of us jeez <coughs> they're not the kind of guys mm-hmm. want to be surfing waves like that because they're not gonna they're not gonna <laughs> say oh let's go back and have yeah, a coffee no. are they <laughs> and uh but uh i started having i it, it was crazy it was like it was like those things you read about war I full-on had a flashback to when I was about six or eight years old in a pool with a guy holding me underwater by my head. Ooh. And uh, and I realized at that moment that that was what all the fear I had for all these years was about. I, I basically lived like 20 years of fear. From a memory. This, from this guy trying to drown me when I was a kid. Mm. And um, he thought it was funny. And so, I, I, and I remember I took water and I actually got water in my lungs when it happened and stuff. I, I don't think he, he wasn't trying to kill me. He was just a bigger guy who thought it was funny to hold a kid underwater. Mm. But, you know, to me it was like life or death. Mm. And so I actually had a flashback and I, I actually realized in that moment, I said, I can actually cure this right now. <laughs> I can, it, but I was, but the waves are so big that I was having trouble like separating from the anxiety being in the ocean. And also like, there's a realistic, like, I mean, these waves are big enough to where you could die. Mm. And, um, um, uh, and also just trying to like process this emotion, emotional trauma that happened 20 years prior to this. So that's crazy. <laughs> it was a weird one because and I, you had consciousness over that conscious, you're in the ocean. Absolute consciousness. With Shane and those other boys. Yeah. I didn't free. tell them about it until later. I don't think, but, um, I caught my second wave and broke my board and I had about, you know, two feet left of board and I was about a mile out to sea, half a mile out to sea. Mm-hmm. The waves were like 40 feet. <laughs> I was sitting there on about two foot of board swimming in the channel. Um, one of the, one of my friends, one of the brothers had a hurt ankle and he couldn't surf. He was just watching, kind of paddle out there with us. Mm. And uh, so I was paddling around with him for a while. And then after about 20, 30 minutes, I said, Oh, I think I'm going to, I'm going to, after the next set, I'm going to swim over and get washed in and just, you know, beeline it to the beach. And he's like, oh, okay, I'll just kind of watch and make sure you get into the right spot. And, and, um, and then a friend of mine showed up on a jet ski that does water safety on the North Shore. He goes, you want to ride in? I'm like, yep, yes, please. I'll take that ride. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, so um, getting back to Hawaii, like, I, I spent a lot of years. I mean, when I was a kid, I was just scared of big waves. And it was just, it wasn't an unrealistic fear, but it was kind of an unrealistic. It, was, it, was, it wasn't really about my surfing experience. It was about my experience in water when mm. I was a kid. And, and um, so I had this, like, sort of unrealistic fear about like how I thought it was real easy to drown. It's not that easy to drown. Like you got to really fuck up to drown, you know, like mm. you, if, if I grabbed you and stuck your head underwater for two minutes right now, you'd live, mm. you know, it, it's your body, your instinct 
takes over and you can force yourself to not breathe for a long time. You got enough you have oxygen running through your veins right now. Although you got you're gonna have CO two in your lungs and your throat, you're gonna feel like you wanna breathe, there's enough oxygen for your brain to work and for your organs to work for a few minutes. So yeah. you know, I don't know how long it is till you each person passes out because of the lack of oxygen, but it's you know, it's not like thirty seconds. It's you are trained in breathing techniques as well, aren't you? You've studied uh, under some a little bit pretty crazy people out there that are uh, known for their breathing. Um, do you practice that out in Big Surf? Um, I do. I do practice. Yeah, I actually right before I won the uh, was it before I won? No, it was it wasn't before I won. It was it was when I when I got second. I won the Eddie Aikau in '02. I thought it was then, but it wasn't. I did this breathing exercise in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, with this guy who held at one point three different world titles in freediving. That's Wim Hof. No, this wasn't Wim. This was another guy. Okay. Um, this guy that I met briefly in the Bahamas years ago, an Italian guy. And he worked at a he worked at a friend of mine's uh, resort there. <coughs> anyway, he he gave me like a thirty second. I mean, a thirty minute, maybe one hour training session in a pool. And during that time, I did my three longest breath holds I'd ever had. Wow. And just like him showing me like. That was like ten or fifteen minutes of him showing me stuff, and um, so I, I actually applied those. Uh, I, 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 then I had I just had this thing when I went on big waves, then I would catch a wave, and I on the paddle back out, I would do these breathing exercises, give myself a solid two minutes before I, at least two minutes before I ever got back to the, like the peak of the wave and and paddle look for one. I was just like get my heartbeat down, get my oxygen levels up. Yep. Then if I wipe out, I'm fine. Yep. And um, I actually. I almost won the Eddie that year. I got second that year, but um, it was a giant, giant day at Wyman. But I felt really comfortable, and it actually made me calm enough to make really good decisions about which waves to catch and all that kind of stuff. So, um, um, you know, but yeah, Wim Hof. I've I've done some breathing stuff with Wim recently. One literally one day at a friend's house. He's he's friends with some of my friends, and they invited me over. About ten of us did some breathing exercises with him one day, and. He made me pass out and fall on my face. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it is five minutes to midnight. <clears throat> I'm um, worried about it. We're, we're all, well, I'm getting tired. I've been, uh, I, I need some uh, toothpicks to hold my eyes open <laughs> yeah. at the moment. But um, last question for you, Kelly. Um, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but will we ever see a WSL contest in a Kelly Slater wave pool? Um, I'd imagine it's a normal step in evolution in surfing. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't, I won't discount it. There's, um, there's every possibility. Obviously WSL uh, partnered with us. They sort of bought our technology. Yep. I'm sure that that is potentially a step at this point. I can tell you 100%. It's not even being talked about as being a tour event mm-hmm. at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, we, we need to get it to where every surfer is completely comfortable, has enough time. Uh, in there has worked on the design enough to make a wave that everyone feel is feels is good enough and fair enough for everybody. Mm. Um, but that being said, yeah, that, that would be the goal to try and make a wave that's good enough for that, potentially good enough for the Olympics. Yeah. Um, um, a good enough, fun enough, fair enough wave that, um, you know, suits different styles of surfing and yep. maybe as uh, a variable, not just necessarily one speed or one shape. It could, you can alter the wave in some fashion. You know, you need to, you need those variables because if you just make it good for one type of surfing or one guy, then you know you kind of stack the deck against everyone else. 
Absolutely. And, um, so how likely is it you can change it to, you know, be vertical and offer ramps for airs and things like that? Uh, we're working on that. Yeah, there's some things out there, and uh, you know, to to change the shape of the wave and the speeds and all that kind of thing. There's 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 a lot of different ways to look at that, and um, you know, from bottom contouring to the way you make their swell, a lot of different things. Um, but you know, there's there's gonna and there's gonna be other technology. You know, other of course, there's yeah. other people. Obviously, there's um, ours, the KS Wave Co. But you know, Wave Gardens clearly working on stuff. American Wave Companies working on stuff. There's a there's a bunch of other people. Um, Greg Weber is is uh, has been working on stuff for years. No one's ever seen his stuff yet, but he yep. has, he has really good ideas. Um, I've talked to him about it. There's and and you know there's for sure going to be um, different strokes for different folks, different types of wave designs for different types of uh, uh, purposes. And How exciting that to think that you can stick a wave pool out in Texas, just as an example, and mm. let people that would never be able to experience the ocean. You know, ride a wave. What an amazing feat, eh? Yeah. Um, you know, some, some hardline surfers, grassroots guys, think that that's totally wrong. Oh, you can't please everyone, and, can you? <laughs> no, you can't. But, you know, <laughs> I, I to that I just say, look, you know, if it's wrong, don't go do it yourself. And, and um, you know, you should really just think about any kind of man-made wave as a supplementary type of surfing. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not surfing necessarily um, in its pure form. Um but it can be if it, if that's the way you experience it. I can I can one hundred percent honestly tell you that I've seen more high percentage of basically every single person who has caught a wave, caught one of our waves, as as big a smile as they've ever had surfing yeah, in their life. Amazing, and, and um, you know that that to me is is uh, more interesting and exciting than watching the people ride the waves. Is the reactions people have? I mean. Kanoa Igarashi came and surfed. I, he was one of the first surfers I invited to come and surf and film with us. Yeah, he caught his first wave and got a couple barrels, did some off the lips, and his dad was on the side of the pool crying, literally. Crying. Really? Yeah. And um, jeez, you I were think, too, no doubt. Oh, I was just laughing, <laughs> just excited. Uh, I'd already been through that initial reaction myself, but to see someone else's, you know, and also to know that I mean, surfing's coming to the Olympics in in Japan in 2020. That is and, awesome. And uh, Kanoa being, he's going to surf for Japan, I believe. Yep. And so his dad, knowing that, it, I think pick, putting the whole thing together and, um, you know, seeing that his, his son's coming into an age and a time when he's going to experience the Olympics, I think all that's kind of hitting home for his dad at one time. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, I mean, I gotta, I gotta like shake my head sometimes and wake up and go, is this thing, is this real? Is all this real? This, I mean, <laughs> we've, we've covered a lot of topics tonight. And, yep. um, uh, you know, when somebody, when I just go about living my daily life, I don't think about all those things. I mean, look, I have some business things, you know, I got to think about the surfboards with firewire and design and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Isolator designs. I, I'm constantly working on design for new reefs or, uh, how to design the wave and speeds and all those sort of things. So, that's it, constantly on my mind but when you you know put all these things uh in in front of my face both personally and professionally it's it's an overwhelming amount of uh of things to absorb you know so oh it's unbelievable and you <coughs> sit right on the bridge of a huge amount of evolution which is just amazing mm, but it's it's um 
it's hard to, I think it's difficult to process all those things in the most healthy way sometimes because mm. it, it, life coming, you know, everyone's life's getting faster and faster and all of our lives are just speeding by so quick and there's so many things happening. And so it's, you know, it's important to kind of try to absorb one thing at a time, process it, understand it, know where you sit with it or what your feelings are, do the right things around it. And then before you move on to something else, and it, yeah. life is so fast now that it's, um, you know, it's hard to, to um, go through the right processes with all of each of those things and, and, and come out the other end clear, you know. Mm, so mm. we do need to take time. At, you know, our mutual friend Trevor Handy, who's been a, a huge wealth of uh, help and information and friendship from me, Trevor's really helped me in my life to, um, uh, you know, when I need to slow down and get my head clear and, mm. and talk to someone. You know, everyone everyone needs someone out there to talk to that can clear their head so that they don't go into situations in life, relationships in life, uh, business situations in life, um, walking down the street, driving your car, all these situations where, mm. you know, people can be crazy. And um, in, in, we, we all need people to help us, uh, help talk us down and get us on a level playing field so that we can go out and see things for what they are. You know? Absolutely. And, um, what is your Zen Kelly? You know, where, where do you find that? Like, I know that you've got a, a, a schedule that changes daily, you know, like yeah. how do you find Zen amongst that? Um, I don't know. You gotta, you gotta fit the things in you, you that make you uh, spring to life, I think. Do you have time just to sit and chill? Do you, you know, I, 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 I push yeah. pause on Viking season four to come over here tonight. <laughs> oh yeah. Do you watch, you know, shows? Do you do anything? I do, do you? you know, I, I, I watched uh, the Narcos. The I, I, hear, I hear you like Candy Crush as well. But I like Candy we'll Crush. We'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, I like Candy Crush. Um, but Narcos on Netflix. Narcos yep. on Netflix. I went through the first season and I mean, there's 10, there's 10 episodes. I went through it probably seven days. Yeah. Like, wow. Doing, trying to do one a night, but probably doing two... I mean, I went through it in five days. I don't know. Wow. Um, I haven't gone through the second season yet. Um, there's another one. Um, what's it called? The something de mal. It's a it's a Spanish it's a Spanish version of the Pablo Escobar story. Oh yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. And there's like seventy something episodes. Wow. And it's so detailed. Cool. It's actually. In my in my view, it's it's sort of better than Narcos in that way because there's just such a depth of information mm. each each one, but it's all subtitled. Um, you love information, don't you? I can just see you've got this mind that likes to grab big chunks of shit mm. and just seep your way through it. I think with the with the Narcos thing, it's really interesting to look at the power structure that was happening there, mm. and and to see how um, you know one person can hold that power structure. Because if Pablo Escobar wasn't in place and people didn't think of him the way they did he was a man of the people wasn't he like people well, looked up to him and loved him in, in a lot of senses he was and he was a, a dichotomy a strange dichotomy of, of of personalities because on one hand he was a a, a man of the people but he also seemed to not care about people at all <laughs> uh, at least that's the way he's portrayed yeah yeah um whether that was true or not i i will never know but the the way he's portrayed seems that way um but uh you know to be able to send this message that the small people matter more than anyone hmm. was powerful. And, um, you know, he, he had a clear vision, you know, whether you agree with that vision or not, it's none of my business, but yeah. you know, he not had to judge, he had a clear vision on, on how to, um, to create that. And so I, I find, I just find the story interesting, um, in that way. Um, uh, yeah. 
Well, Kelly, from a man that's come from nothing, as you say, and achieved the massive um, accolades and levels you have, it's been really humbling and insightful to hear your story. And uh, thank you so much for opening your heart and sharing that stuff with us. Um, I know that some of that is quite deep, and I do um, respect that people in your position do try to struggle with maintaining some level of their personal life. But mm. it's been most insightful. I'm sure everyone's really enjoyed hearing Kelly Slater's story. Um, and guys, I don't need to tell you where to find Kelly, <laughs> Instagram, Facebook. <laughs> uh, he's got a couple of million followers on there and uh, he's certainly a guy worth following. But Kelly, it's been so good. Um, do you have any last thoughts, anything you need to say, anything you want to put out there? or? Um. Um, this is where you dig deep, <laughs> dig deep <laughs> at <yeah>. midnight. <laughs> no, I think, um, I think the only thing, uh, you know, we, we talked about the shark situation when that, at the end of that, um, uh, to kind of finish up on, on that, I, I worked with Paul Watson in the days after, uh, as that thing emerged and got really, it, for me, it really got out of hand. Cause I mean, there was just so much press about that one thing mm. and, um, um, but I, 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 I did a lot of back and forth talking with Paul Watson, um, from Sea Shepherd about, about that specific situation and what solutions there could be. I've since been in contact with a number of different shark advocates, environmentalists, um, oceanographers, that kind of thing, um, to talk about solutions to come up with maybe some other kind of technology or netting or something, you know, I mean, it's definitely not in my heart to go out there and attack the ocean. You know, it's of course just, not. Yeah. It, it, it seems even silly that I, uh, that you need to defend that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, but, uh, you know, th- that is a specific situation that I, I'm working intently on with a number of different people to mm. hopefully come up with solutions that, that solve everyone's concerns there. And I'm not saying that I'm necessarily a person that can solve anything. I'm just, you know, we, we can all network and, and share information together and, and potentially come up with something that works for everybody. Mm, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and, and also create a healthier situation there for, you know, uh, it's been, you know, everyone, everyone there says it's been overfished. Um, there's an excessive amount of sharks, you know, can, can that balance come back in a natural order? So anyways, there's a lot of work. I think behind the scenes. I don't uh, just look at the uh, the barrier reef. You know, yeah. it's 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 fucked. You know, eighty percent bleaching at the moment for the second time in two years, like second time in consecutive years, mm. and it's one of our natural wonders of the world, which is extremely disappointing and really worrying for our future and our children. Yeah, I see. I I don't feel informed enough on uh, the bleaching and stuff because I will say, like, I go to Tavaru every year. I go to Fiji a, a lot. I spend probably two months a year in Fiji, six weeks a year anyways. They've had, it in the, in three decades, three decades there, they've had three big bleaching events and each time the reef came back. Mm. Um, and I, I'm a little unclear on, I mean, and we're getting off on another subject here, but I'm, I'm a little unclear on what causes the bleaching exactly. Is it really temperature? Temperature, yeah. Because. And they can recover, but yeah, in consecutive can. years, mm. they don't recover, apparently. So yeah. the scientists say. Yeah, so it's a, uh, um, it's amazing to me that the research that at what temperature all of a sudden do they just not handle mm. and, 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 uh, cause it, it doesn't seem like the ocean's five degrees warmer. That's you know? right. Is it one degree? Is it? And I didn't think reefs were that susceptible to it. So I don't know if there's also something else that's happening with the amount of oxygen in the ocean or whatever. I mean, mm. I'm just talking on my ass. Of right course. Now because, no, it makes sense. Absolutely. You know, yep. Um, cause just a, a temperature, a, a couple of degrees here and there, I thought, 
you know, you you would just think, oh, it could handle, you know. Hmm. Are they that susceptible to, to uh, reefs and, and corals that susceptible just to temperature uh, changes here and there? But, you you know, it makes you wonder if the salinity in the, in the ocean and the, the oxygen levels and all, all those sort of things. Um, a lot of variables. Yeah, a lot of variables. Um, so you can't really discount anything. Um, you know, there's a lot of industrial waste and um I mean, we haven't even talked about Fukushima, mm. um, the, the nuclear waste, radiation going into the ocean, 90% of it going in the ocean, only 10% going in the air. Um, robots are melting that are trying to work on the thing. And, mm. I mean, it's probably the worst man-made catastrophe ever that we've ever known of on Earth. And it's not being talked about at all. Well, I'm glad you use your position to talk about it. Who who should be talking about this? Obviously, there's Everybody. environmentalists out there, Everybody. government officials. I mean, this should be... This is a worldwide issue. This mm. is a, this is a catastrophe. Problem for, this is a worldwide problem. This isn't this isn't a problem for Japan. This is a problem for if you eat fish. This is a problem for mm. if you swim in the Pacific Ocean. This is a problem if you're getting fallout in the Midwest. I mean, they're they're measuring higher radiation supposedly in milk in the Midwest because all that air and 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 uh, uh, fallout you know just travels up through the through the uh, jet stream. And I mean. I don't know. They're talking about all kinds of weird stuff with, you know, fish die outs off the coast of Alaska and Canada. I mean, I oftentimes think, what if all the other animals in the world live the way we do as humans and fuck this place up as bad as we do? Mm. I think we would be killing all the animals because it'd be like, look what they're doing to the environment. Look it, what they're doing. <laughs> is, this, is this why you're seriously considering becoming a vegan? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. And I watch slaughterhouse videos and I watch... Yeah, they're you know, shocking, um, aren't they? I watch animal cruelty videos and stuff. It's hard. I, 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 there's no forgiveness for a person that would harm an innocent uh, child or animal. I think. Mm. I think there's no curing that in people. And um, I wish. I hope there is, but it, it seems to be like a, a disease of the mind, a psychosis, <laughs> some some of the highest sort of the highest order. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But you know, like um, you know, people who wear fur have no idea I, I think for the most part the effect that they're having i mean go watch dogs being skinned alive in mm. china and mm. thailand and vietnam and and um uh you know watch these videos and see where where our you, world's going where the world's going and, mm. and and how you are playing into that um but that's these are all just one issue after another after, and in the scope of the whole world i don't know if any of them are I mean, they're all i don't know they're all big and they're all horrible but mm. Um, it all starts though with education it all starts with people talking about it and it all starts with one person making a move doesn't it you know what I mean you make a move I make a move next person does we talk to someone yeah yeah it's just the right people putting the right ideas together and not being offensive to each other Mm. that's another thing is you know a lot of us have messages that are pure and good um, but are delivered in a bad way yeah and you attack people and tell them they're stupid and call them names and you know say things that have nothing to do with the topic and deviate completely from fact and mm. turn into complete opinion and welcome to the world of social media biases yeah, yeah. And i i think i think at the end of the day um most people are struggling with the same problems in life the same they're, they're simple you know around fulfillment and love and mm. understanding and you know absolutely being acknowledged for who they are and what they believe and that yeah. kind of stuff and being accepted for who they are um yep. Uh, but we all get, all of us, every single one of us is guilty of getting caught up in 
and saying something we didn't mean and doing something that we shouldn't do. And, um, you know, the, the change comes around that awareness for each of us to, to, uh, stop that in ourselves and help someone else stop that too. It's funny that message of kindness keeps coming back round. You know, it's a uh, something I, I, I see continually. Um, certainly playing out in my podcast. Certainly playing out in the world of people um, who are, are people who are generally listened to. That you know, we need to be kind to each other, yeah. to ourselves. You know, the, the strangest thing I'll probably say on this show is is uh, I'm I'm watching this um, series. Yeah, I said if I'm watching a series, mm-hmm. and I'm watching the series right now. That Here's the no, truth <laughs> that no one would be able to believe if they have any doubts about I, this thing is like i'm pretty open-minded to things and yeah. i'm watching the show that is so out there um called cosmic disclosure it's on gaia gaia.com yep and it's about this guy who said he's been in the secret deep space program for the last 20 years and been traveling to outer space constantly um long story short <laughs> he keeps coming back to the he's he's interacting with aliens and all sorts of stuff but but he's saying that um these aliens are all saying that there's no place for nuclear, uh, you don't need nuclear bombs or um, energy. Yeah. And that the message is kind of a hippie message is what he says. It's a, a message of peace and loving each other. And so he's saying these these are the most evolved creatures in the whole universe. And they're saying that ultimately all you have to learn is to like love each other and take care of each other. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny that, you know, you would think something so far evolved in, in the techno- technological spectrum might, might, uh, might be totally devoid of feelings or something, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> but really I think that's ultimately we're trying to get back to, you know, you spend your, your early life learning things and you spend the rest of your life unlearning things mm. and trying to get back to who you are. Yep. Essentially. Um, I saw this video a couple of days ago and they took 20 or 30 people in a room that were couples, say 10 or 15 couples. And they had adults try to put, they were just randomly, these people were randomly, uh, in a room and they, ask all these adults say okay who are the couples pick pick who should be together and those try to put the couples together and um they're saying oh well you know they both look conservative um <laughs> they dress like like or whatever and they 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 uh they were coming oh they both have tattoos they must be together yeah yeah and then they they got all these kids and they said they said uh okay we're going to have the kids pick and the kids were like well they both look happy the same way or like you know they 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 just look like they would love each other, you know, and, and yeah. it's, so it turned, they, the kids were able to pick uh, most of the right cup pairings of couples mm. and the adults had a completely, uh, based on stereotypes, pr- completely stereotyped way of looking at it. So I think that, you know, there's a purity in kids and, and, uh, and, and animals somehow gets lost, you know, in us adults as we move, isn't it? But yeah. you know what, Kelly, we love you. We're very, very grateful for your time. Um, it's been awesome having the chat, and uh, I wish you the very best in the rest of your career, however fucking long that will be. You're <laughs> probably surfing when you're 52. Um, retirement, we don't care about those questions, but um, you've done awesome, mate. And life after surfing, um, wish you all the very best. There's no life after surfing. But uh, <laughs> look, thanks for the cell charge. Thanks for the hydro regen from a girl. Pleasure, and, mate. Um, Pleasure. You'll go far. And, uh, look, I look forward to linking up with you more and, and uh, you know, whether it's personally or professionally. Lovely. Good thanks. on you, Kelly. Thanks, mate. Hey, guys. It's Shannon here. Thanks for listening to this episode with Kelly. I really hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I wanted to tell you a couple of things about Cell Charge that could quite literally change your life. Cell Charge is the world's most potent, organically sourced, single-origin, fulvic mineral supplement. 
If you suffer from low energy, fatigue, poor sleep, slow metabolism, stress, poor nutrition, or even if you're just looking to boost your overall performance in the gym, on the field, or at the office, I highly recommend trying Cell Charge. Get yours today at cellcharge.com.au. And don't worry about the AU, we ship worldwide. See you next week. Cheers.